sort of a bait and switch. Jed said we're going to finish Exodus, and uh, I wasn't feeling like it. Um, I hope I could explain why. Um, so we're scheduled to finish the last six chapters of Exodus. Anybody read ahead? A couple of you. Do you know why? Okay, maybe you know, maybe you know why. Um, the last six chapters basically are the blueprints of the tabernacle, of which when Paul taught two weeks ago, it was basically the repetitive parts of 25 through 31. So it's sort of rinse and repeat, and, and I thought Paul did a great job with that. So just if you weren't here, let me just tell you what's in this section. There are Sabbath regulations. There is how to build the ark, how to build the, the, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the bronze basin, the uh, courtyard, all the materials to be used and when to drag it out and use it. So that's sort of what's in these six chapters. There's stuff to be said, certainly, but I think Paul uh, did a pretty good job two weeks ago. Um, and so, so here's what my, I plan to do. I, I want to take a little bit of a turn and I want to finish with looking at what God is really up to with the tabernacle, um, sort of a little bit like what uh, Paul did a couple weeks ago. But I don't want to just totally neglect the six chapters. To be honest, when I was reading it going, is there anything that I could wring out of this to make a 30-minute who cares sermon? I, didn't, I couldn't find that. But I have a couple of points that struck me, I felt convicted by, that I want to share with you. If you've read the six chapters, there's incredible detail in them. And you might ask yourself a question, who cares? Like God, why would God be so interested in how many cubits and how high, how, what, what the materials, why would he care? Um, I think God is very specific for his very specific reasons. And what struck me uh, with the detail you see in just the tabernacle instructions is that we have to embrace a God who really cares about the details. And I say that to a culture who doesn't. We don't care. A world that has gone jello soft on truth, like every man for himself, <clears throat> everyone does right, what's right in his own eyes, whatever's true for you is true for you. You, you can look at what is declared to be the authority, the word of God, established forever, and say, mm, maybe not for me, not this time. He meant something else. He doesn't understand what it's like to live in 2019, and so we rewrite the rules. Um, let me just tell you that the details matter, and that we should embrace the details because they matter to God. Take it away from, for a second for, from the instructions on the tabernacle. Hard to maybe really put that in a value system for us, but... But if I said to you, God cares about all the details of your life and all the ways in which his commandments have affected or should affect your life, then maybe you would care. Because he's given plenty of details. How children should respond to their parents, it's in here. The details matter. How fathers should treat their children, it's in here. The details should matter. How wives respond to their husbands, how husbands respond to their wives, it's not subjective, it's in here. Details matter. Women's roles, men's roles, and what God has said about it, they're not up for grabs. The details are in here, and it matters to God. Gender absolutes, what makes a man, what makes a woman. Getting close to home, 
Getting sensitive? Are we feeling the culture pushing on us a little bit? God said stuff about that, and the details matter. He talks about how we're supposed to respond to authority, even authority we don't like. The details are in here. The details matter. How and who we're supposed to love. As, as great and easy as your brothers and sisters, as difficult and insane as your enemy, they're in here. The details matter. This exclusive, narrow, separating it for everything else gospel, the good news that Jesus alone saves and it flushes every other concept or idea matters. The details are in here. So when you see something like a tabernacle or an ark and it just looks like cubits to you and it's just measurements and you go, I don't know, why would it matter? God doesn't waste words. And what he said is established as truth. And I say that only because maybe I'm anxious about a culture that's lost its ever-loving mind when it comes to things that, that are greater than their feelings. But the truth matters. And by the way, it's not meant to be restrictive it's not meant to ruin. The words of God are meant to liberate and free sinners. So we look at it like, oh, it's in the way, it gets away from what I want, and that may be true because you might want what will hurt you. Only God can see the big picture and give you what you really would ask for if you had a right mind. So that's one thought that came to me. Couldn't make a sermon out of that. <laughs> Here's another thought, though. <clears throat> And that is that uh, when you watch how the tabernacle is instructed and then you watch the people in their response to the commandments of God, you end up here too, that, uh, that God's people have a willing heart to obey God's details. And I put that together. God's people, very specific group of people, under a specific confession, have a willing, joyful heart to obey the details. It's, it's clear in this text. The text tells us, when it comes just to the tabernacle, that the people together, collectively, gave crazy, generous amounts of their possessions to see the tabernacle come together. They gave of their time and their talents and their abilities, and they worked together to see it through, one example. And what struck me was that there's something to be said about the all-in nature of a people who say they want to meet with God. That's what the, that's what the tabernacle is. God, we want to meet you. We see you. Don't leave us. We can't go anywhere without you. God, be with us. And so when people, when the people of God understand that and want it, it's incredible to see how much they invest in God with them. They're desperate for it. And let me just play the old man for a little bit, not like I don't do that all the time, but this doesn't sound popular in the church. All in? Really? Really? Hold nothing back? I'm even afraid to ask the question. Christian, are you all in? Really? I wouldn't know. Does the miracle of God with us get all of us? I mean, we're getting ready to do Advent next week. God with us is the theme. We're going to look at the ways in which God has come close to sinners. Now, you would think that people who are that desperate see their condition that clearly would sell the farm to have his presence, but not in our church. I'm not talking about Gilbert. I'm talking the church. He's always conditional. He's always kept at a safe, safe distance. He, he's always kind of marginalized, like, God, you can come this close. You'll get this much. You won't get it all. Because I'm not certain I trust that, or I, I, I'm certain I trust me more than you, and so we kind of hold out. Radical? 
We lost that word a long time ago. We're safe. God gets my time, he gets my attendance, he gets my money based on my other values. And I'm just telling you this. You cannot read Israel's response to God's presence without seeing radical. They gave generously, they served joyously, and they sacrificed together to see the presence of God come. And that's supposed to be the representation of the church. You figure that out, wherever the Holy Spirit is bringing that on you, that's on you. And that was what I gleaned out of those six chapters. Now let's move on to what I'm going to say. Um, I want to talk about the tabernacle, more specifically, where the Exodus tabernacle points. The tabernacle was a, was a place where the presence of God dwelt with God's people. As Paul talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, what these structures and these images were pointing to was that God, the Son, Jesus, being the ultimate temple, the ultimate presence of God with his people. And we saw that over and over again, that all sinners who repent and believe are are. They meet God in Christ. That's how we come to him, right? Jesus is the sanctuary. He's the covering. He's the presence of God. We meet God in Christ. In fact, we know this from John's gospel in chapter one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how we get it, all right? But there is another aspect in the New Testament, a picture of the temple or tabernacle, and it's of us. We, the church. We are the sanctuary of God, the temple of God, the, the, that tabernacle, a dwelling place for God. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter two. This is where we're gonna spend our time this morning because Paul talks about this issue. He talks about what God is fashioning us into and this particular dwelling place. In chapter two, we're gonna pick it up in verse 11. We'll get a running start at kind of really what I'm gonna say. Um, But let's try to get Paul's big idea and where it comes from. Verse 11, chapter two of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that that... At that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. This is key sentence. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Here's Paul's big idea, that God is building a new community of people so that he can dwell with them the presence of God with us. One writer kind of took Paul's language and said that that he's essentially creating a new third race, Jew, Gentile, and believer, right? People who think they're in, people who know they're out, and people who are truly in. That is the classifications that Paul is defining for us here. A new humanity is what Paul says in the NIV. Reconciled to God and to each other. What Paul goes on to in verses 19 through 22 is he starts using word pictures to to describe to us what this new humanity or this this new uh, 
third race looks like. And you should be familiar with word pictures. They're, they're powerful ways to kind of sink the truth. Jesus was great at word pictures when he said, you are the light of the world. Go put your light out there. And you, you kind of in your mind, oh, wow, I'm, I'm supposed to shine this everywhere. Lights don't shut off, they just shine. Jesus said of himself that he is the bread of life. He's the good shepherd, and you can just unpack the, the illustrations of all that. Paul, when he was preaching, would, would talk about the Christian life and the journey of the Christian life and the struggle of the Christian life in athletic terms. I box in such a way, I run in such a way, and so it kind of paints this endurance and hard work part of transformation and sanctification, and we all kind of know that. Well, here Paul uses three particular like word pictures to describe this new humanity. One is a country... Two is a family, and three is a building. That's how it lays out for us here. All of it to describe us, the church. So first of all, who we are in Christ, we belong to a new country. Verse 19, consequently, consequently you no longer are foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. We're fellow citizens, no longer foreigners and strangers. The ESV says aliens, but you get the point. It paints a clear picture of what it's like to be outside of Christ. Maybe we don't use this language, but foreigner and stranger or alien is a good picture. Most people outside of Christ wouldn't use that language because they don't know what outside really means. You need perspective to know what it's like. And those of us who are saved look back and go, oh, wow. I was way outside of this, right? We understand that. To be a stranger is to not belong to watch something going on over there and not be invited in or not feel like you fit or have no clue. I've told you this before. I grew up in a pastor's home, missionary home or whatever, and we were always moving. It felt like we were always moving. But my first 10 years of life, I grew up in West Texas. You know when a kid develops his accent, right? First 10 years. And it was thick on me. I sounded like Amarillo, all right? And then we moved to New Mexico. And when we got to New Mexico, one of these was not like the others. I'm just saying. Everyone knew I was the stranger. I couldn't say hello without them knowing, well, he's one of them. I wasn't ostracized, but it was clearly, hey, us and them. We, we knew that. To be a foreigner is even a more intense idea. It's to be in a place you don't belong with no rights and no privileges. You got nothing. And what Paul is saying here in a spiritual sense before Christ, we are all strangers. We don't belong. We have no rights with the kingdom, no privileges. We don't know the king or what he would do or how good he is. We don't know anything. We're strangers. And as in, as in foreigners, it's even more intense. We don't understand God. In fact, the, the text tells us this. To those outside, that's not its language, but to those who are perishing, the good news is foolishness. That's what it's like to be a foreigner to hear something like Jesus saves sinners and it comes by grace, by faith alone, and you can go, what stupid. What a joke. Jesus is a restrictor, not a savior. And that's what we do without help. We need divine intervention, but that's where we are, foreigners and strangers. The promises of the kingdom don't apply to me and all truth goes right over my head. I don't get it. That's what it's like to be in that condition. But Paul says that is no longer the way it is. It's not like that anymore for those of us who are in Christ. We are now citizens with his people and with God. And being a citizen means something. 
there are certain privileges, rights, and protection and authority that apply to our life now. It's the king. We serve him. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it perfectly, I think. He said, we no longer live on a passport. We now have a birth certificate, which paints the perfect picture. It's different. You're brought so much closer with that birth certificate, right? Your DNA, your spiritual DNA is connected to your maker. That's us now. In Christ, we have become, as Paul says, now this new third race. A church is a group of people of all kinds of weird people. You know that, right? Look to your left, look to your right, and welcome the weird people. We're all weird people. Different stripes, different colors, different backgrounds, different weaknesses, different problems, different trouble, different color. But God has taken the mess and formed one new humanity out of that mess, and they all share one particular perspective. Jesus is king. He's worth everything. We are sharing the experience of forgiveness and salvation and love because of Christ, and we, hear, we have now as a common people a new language. We don't talk like we used to talk. We have new commitments, new loyalties, new goals, new affections, new, a new family. I mean, there's everything brand new to being the new humanity. It's exactly what Peter said in 1 Peter 2. You know this, but you were a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Is that awesome? Guess what? It gets better. Not only are you not just a country, you're new, a new people, a, a, a new civilization, you are now belonging to a new family. Verse 19, he goes on to say, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Being a fellow citizen is pretty great, but to be a family is far, far better. Kind of blows up the whole stranger and foreigner thing when you're family. The text makes it plain that we have the same father. We say, share the same position as children. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Let me remind you, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry what? What does that mean? Daddy. <laughs> I love it. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul says we have the same inheritance, the same intimacy to the Father. If you go on to look at his writings, even to Timothy, the young pastor, he describes us as brothers and sisters emphatically. We belong to each other. I just went home to see my dad and I saw my brother I'm closer to most of you than I am my brother. Just saying. That's, that's a spiritual reality, and it's a felt experience. And a lot of us know what that's like. Someone once said that as God's children, we, we outrank everybody in God's kingdom. Like everybody is under his kingdom, whether they want it or know it or not. But we outrank everybody as God's kids. I, I found a picture that kind of paints that. I've shown it to you before, but look at this. You could put a subtitle under there. Yeah, he's your president, but he's my daddy. You, you get the point? 
Yeah, he's everybody's God, whether you believe it or not, but he's our father. He knows us. He loves us. His plans are good for us. All of his promises apply to us. No condemnation and no, no separation from God. Holding on to us, caring for us, giving us what we need. It's our dad. In fact, that's what John says, 1 John 3. See how great the love of the Father is that he lavished on us that we should be called the what? Children of God. And that's exactly what we are. That's what the text says. And he cares for us like the best dad ever. Whatever troubles us moves him. Peter says, cast your cares. Why? Why? Why should I bother casting my cares on the Father? Because he cares for you. It's real. Let me give you another thought about this family relationship. You can be who you are. No faking, no pretending, no posturing, no insecurity. Fully known and fully loved as children of God. Let, let me put it in a way that really makes sense. In my house, if you're going to be comfortable and part of the family, you can lay around in your fat pants, and it's okay. Do <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? You know the ones you don't, don't want to be seeing in, and you don't want to answer the door in? Those pants. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, church, you can lay around in your fat pants in this family. God already knows. He knows the chinks and the weaknesses. He knows the struggles, and he knows the fear. He knows the insecurities. He knows the whole story, and he loves you, and he's providing for you. That's the reality of being a part of the family. So in Christ, we're citizens of another land. In Christ, we're members of a new family. Here's the third picture that Paul uses to describe this third race, and that is of a holy building, and this is where we go full circle on the tabernacle conversation. Look at verses 20 through 22. Well, let's back up to verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy, what? Temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. A long, long time ago, back in the early 80s, I worked as a laborer for a bricklayer. And you just make mortar and move brick and set up scaffold. That's what you do. And I watched a lot of bricklayers back then, but it's interesting to me that the way buildings were built back then are the exact same way they're built today. Techniques haven't changed. There are three things that are always a part of a great solid building built out of stone or, or brick. Good foundations, good cornerstones, right? And, and good building blocks. That's, that's what's always a part of this. And Paul says the same thing about this building we are being built into. He says that this new community has a foundation as well. Verse 20 says it. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What Paul's referring to there is God's truth, God's word. The role the apostles and the prophets took in the early church was to communicate what God thought and said to the church. Before there was ever this canon we call the Bible and we carry around the precision of all this, they were the ones speaking truth to the church. You understand? The foundation is God's truth. That's what he's talking about here. This new foundation. This holy community is not only built on the word of God, but it's also has a perfect cornerstone. And Paul says that Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. Perhaps you already know this, and it may be even intuitive to you, but cornerstone to a building is what makes it true. Cornerstone to a building is what makes it plumb or straight or safe 
or strong or reliable, without a good cornerstone, you're in trouble. The whole, whole building's in trouble. The cornerstone is what decided the building. In fact, all other stones had to be adjusted to the cornerstone because the cornerstone was the standard. Are you getting the point? In Christ, who is our cornerstone, all of us have to adjust our lives to his. He sets the standard for our life. Jesus is that cornerstone. Jesus is that and much, much more to us. Just, just as a sampling of what the text tells us, you know these verses. Jesus is true. He said of himself in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. He is absolutely the plumb of this whole thing. He is safe. Colossians 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God, a covering, a shelter. He's safe. He is straight. Acts 4 says, salvation is found in no other name under heaven. For there is no other name other than Jesus. Proverbs 18 says he's strong. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. Everywhere you see the depiction of Jesus, he is, he is the definition of what it is to be the cornerstone. Let me make this point in case it doesn't just dawn on you. This holy building that God is building isn't strong because of its leaders or its numbers. This holy building is not strong because of its history or its mission. It's not strong because of its impact. Let's just pretend that all that is as good as you could possibly get. It's still not strong because of the responses to the cornerstone. It's strong because of Jesus, period. He alone gets the glory for this. And let me just make this point. God's putting it on me right now. Some of you have experienced church in a very disappointing way. And you're holding out on God because man has disappointed you. What are you thinking? What all God did by giving you a bad experience is expose your idolatry that you wanted something more than just Jesus to be your strength. I don't, nobody wants to fail you. And I trust even these people who do that they're feeling massive regret and sin. They're just sinners. We're, I told you last week, or two weeks ago, we're all chuckleheads. That's just true. But if you're holding out on God because you don't, you've got too much faith in the system, you're dead wrong. It isn't strong for any other reason but Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. All right. There is something else that's a part of this holy building that's not stated in specifics, but it should be obvious to us, and that is this new community, this new building involves us, the saints, all right? Or if you're just gonna continue Paul's metaphor here, the holy building needs stones, okay? In fact, again, verse 21 and 22, he says, built on a foundation or backup, uh, verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This holy temple, his church, his people are mortared together with Christ. We're built in Christ together. One, one writer kind of just took that thought and ran with it and said, what are the ways in which we see the application of that truth, that we are, we are many parts of part of this holy dwelling? And he made, I think, some poignant thoughts, and I'll just repeat them. One of them, he said, was that you've got to understand that it's the master builder who selects the stones. In other words, embrace sovereignty. 
God picks what he puts in his building. It's clear throughout all the biblical narratives, Ephesians and Romans and on and on, that God is the sovereign one. He does the work. It's also true that the stones are all placed in position to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, which I said before. We get our perspective from him. We get our standard from him. We get our life from him. He is the, he is the beginning and the end right there. And so this building has no hope without Jesus. The stones are all different shapes and sizes, different colors, different gifts, different abilities, different placements. And it's the chief builder who picks the varieties and makes something beautiful out of it. Should be obvious to us that the stones are linked together to one another. You can't, you can't read your New Testament to, to not see that every author suggests there's a deep, deep connection between us. The one another's are all over it. How we pray for each other, encourage one another, build one another up, confront each other about sin, hang with each other. Somehow in God's sovereign plan, this holy building means we're connected. And that, that flies in the face of a culture that says every man for himself, right? I got something to say, but I won't say it. Um, let me just suggest to you that when a building, a holy building's built, you don't notice the stones. The buildings fit in the, in the building to bring glory to the structure. The Here's what's amazing. He can take us, as messy as we are, form us together into one new man, one new building, and he will get the glory from it. Don't be confused where, you, where your placement is. We're reflections of that glory. And then I would remind you always that you are just one, one dot on a giant map of this building. This building God's been building from the very beginning of time. It's a big building. It's got lots of people. There are people all over the world right now, brothers and sisters of Christ who are part of the building and you don't even know their names. It's a big building. Don't forget that. Let me add one more thought. And then I got a couple so what's. Stones are just stones unless God makes them live. This is exactly what Peter says. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones. Transformation. We'll talk about that in a second. Let me give you a couple so what's. I think you need to rejoice in your redemption this morning, church. In view of this small little section, to just revel in his salvation seems appropriate, right? It seems like the right thing. Because if you begin in Ephesians, at the very beginning, Paul graciously gives us the horrible news that we're dead in our transgressions and sins, unresponsive to God. We want nothing to do with him, separate from Christ, without hope and without God. It can't get worse than that. And then he says, verse 19, consequently, you no longer. That phrase actually indicates a complete and permanent action. No longer are you dead. No longer are you separate. No longer are you on the outside. You've been brought on the inside, Right? The fact of the matter is this, that we all should still be dead and without hope, but God, who is rich in mercy, right? Full of grace 
and for his own good pleasure, reached into the mud pit and drug us out and put on us the robes of his son and gave us the inheritance of the kingdom. And he'll never forget that promise. So maybe we should rejoice that we are no longer what we used to be and we're everything that he's died to make us to be. One last little so what. Not just rejoice in your redemption, rejoice in your sanctification. Verse 22, it says, in him you two are being built, present tense, being built together to become a dwelling, a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a temple in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, we're being transformed. How does that happen? This goes back to 1983, I think. I was building a seawall at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in November, all right? There's got to be a star in heaven for that. I don't know. <laughs> and we were making it out of the stones you found around the lake. And there's some stones like this and some stones, but real stones, right? The waves are crashing in and we're trying to mix mortar and put this thing together. But the bricklayers would never just take a stone and force it into the wall. They'd take out their brick hammer. And they'd look at the stone, they'd look at the wall, and they'd go, tink, 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 tink. And once it was the right shape, it went into the wall. Anybody ever seen that before? Yeah. Okay. That's exactly how it happens for, for us. God chips away on our life, and he doesn't stop until we're the perfect shape for the building that he's building. He doesn't quit. And I, I know, I know, I know human nature, like, Lord, quit. Just quit. Take me as I am. Stick me in and don't work on me. But that is not his promise. His promise is to shape us into his image and to work on it. And let me just tell you what you already know. It's never over. Get used to the chipping hammer. It never goes away. Took all of my sons to Aurora, Illinois last week to see my dad. I've told you this story before. Um, my dad lives in assisted care. My mom lives in a hospital. She's not here. Okay, she's a zombie, um, as sad as that is to say. My dad goes up and down an elevator, a high rise. He lives alone and he navigates across the parking lot three times, three times a day. I'm gonna cry, this is stupid. Um, and he strokes her cheeks and he says he loves her. She doesn't know, she didn't know anything. And then he gets back in his chair, he goes back across the parking lot, back to his room to live alone. And he would say it's crazy, the whole place is crazy. Um, and then he said, my boys were picking his brain, like, what did you learn? They're telling stories and all sorts of stuff. And he said, here's what I know. He's 85. He's a pastor, was a pastor. He says, I realize I'm much more worse of a sinner than I ever thought possible. And I said, are you crazy? How can you sin in this place? There's nothing to do. No TV, you're alone, you just got a chair and a cane. What, what, you could, what could you possibly be doing in this building by yourself? There's nobody to talk to. And you know what we're talking about, don't you? The sin goes so much deeper than out there. It's the flesh. And my guess is, my guess is that my dad, wheeling down to my mom every once in a while, finds impatience and bitterness. He didn't show it. He's a pretty good dude, I'm telling you. Um, but I got to believe every once in a while, he's running out of hope. And he wants to quit. And he might get angry at God. And God just goes, tink, tink. Tink, tink. And he leaves him right in that building. And nothing he can do about it. And uh, 
I shared that as an illustration. I hope that doesn't happen to us. But it happened to him. His whole spiritual life has been uphill. And if I told you the stories, you go, who? I'd quit God if that was my experience. He won't. He's a man of deep, deep faith, but he also knows right now at 85 and he's almost done, God's not finished. Don't get tired of the chipping hammer, yeah? Let's rejoice in that. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder of what you're doing with us, that you've put us together by your grace and by your power to belong in this new community as this new family and this new building, building where your presence can dwell. God, we know we're the problem. We know that we're the stones out of shape and we're grateful that you're so committed in love to us that you don't ever quit the work. Help us see that. Help us not grow weary or impatient. God, remind our hearts how much you love us today. And we are grateful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.